Would you turn with me to John chapter 15? John chapter 15, we're going to continue in this book. And as we come to the word of the Lord today, as the word of the Lord approaches us, I want us to think about what happens in these moments. You know, uh, you'll see as you come into our gatherings that we have Matthew chapter uh, 11, verse 28 posted on the wall. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. There's good news in that. Those who are tired can come and find rest. But how is it that he, he does that? Does he put us to sleep through my sermon? I pray not this morning. What does that verse go on to say? Verse 29 says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These words, learn from me. To genuinely understand and, and accept a teaching, and not just understand it and accept it, but to understand it as true and apply it to your life. So to come to understanding, to accept it, and apply it. That's what's happening here as Jesus instructs us from his word. We can learn from him. This, a lot of times, is used in the context of a lifelong habit. But the rest for our souls come, comes through learning from our Savior and our King, Jesus. You know, last week we did look, as Mike mentioned, at the fruit of the Spirit, that it's not a checklist for us to work through for acceptance, but it is the flourishing of a heart set free by the good news of grace. And so what might spiritual flourishing look like? How is it that we can receive instruction in what spiritual flourishing looks like? You know, a flourishing life is something that we all actually long for. It's why many of us go to work, whether you enjoy your vocation or not. You give yourself to that work because of the, the, the earnings for the time off that you look forward to. That's, that's part of a flourishing life. We want to flourish in our vocation. We want to have mental health and, and emotional stability so that we might flourish. We want to have spiritual health. We want to have physical health so that we might flourish. And the world talks about these things in very plain terms, more so today than, than I think I've ever experienced in my lifetime. More so than I even hear from those who are older than I about what they've experienced in their lifetime. And so what does a spiritually flourishing life look like? We're not left to ourselves to try to figure that out. No, Jesus actually instructs us in John chapter 15 what a spiritually flourishing life looks like. So let's look at his word together and receive his instruction. And as he tells us to, to learn from him as we learn how to rest in his goodness toward us. John chapter 15, I'm going to begin in verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We could just pause right there, couldn't we? Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you may love one another. You know, Jesus' commands are not burdensome to us. They're our best. They're for our best. They're for that spiritual flourishing. And he has fulfilled the demands of the law and the judgment of God's law that could condemn us. We consider passages like Romans 10.4 where it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you're here today, the demands and the judgment that come from God's law that could condemn you are now released through Jesus Christ. He is the end of the law. He is the righteousness to everyone who believes, as Romans 10.4 tells us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These are things that speak to our identity in Jesus Christ. They're things that speak to the very core of who we are, the ability to enter into his presence. And so what is the the flourishing of that? What is the fruitfulness that comes from that? Well, it's the ability to have answered prayers. Let's look at verse 7. It says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we might think, well, maybe I misunderstood that. No, actually, in verse 16b, it says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, he's building on what he talked about last week, but but we can ask for whatever we wish? Yes. See, because when we abide in Christ, we are no longer living for ourselves. We are living for the glory of God and for the good of others. So if you're living for the good of others, if you're living for the glory of God, if that's the the mindset that is being established in your mind, if that's the posture of the heart before Him, if that's the thing that motivates us for the day, ask, and it will be answered to you. Remember, this isn't for ourselves. This isn't a selfish faith. This is a selfless faith. But in the midst of that, we can ask whatever we want, whatever we wish, No longer living for ourselves, for the glory of God, for the good of others, and it will be answered to us. Isn't that wonderful? That we have a God that hears us when we pray, that hears us in those moments that we're crying out to Him, that knows that Jesus is the vine, that we are the branches, and our prayers become this conduit for life-giving nutrients flowing back and forth for the Spirit-led life. It's natural. It's because of our union, our connection with Christ. And where there are prayers in the Christian's life, there will be answers. Where there are prayers, there will be answers because God listens to his people when we pray. We receive the words of God. His words inform us. They instruct us. They command us. And in response to the word, And response to Scripture, we pray. Our requests are guided then and shaped by the truth of the Word that we are given. His words shape 
the answers to our prayer. His words inform the prayers that we pray to begin with. And as His word shapes our desires and the Spirit forms in us, forms us from the inside out, we will begin to pray about the things that God cares about the most. To the parent praying for a child, to the one burdened praying for healing, to the one who is praying for redemption and restoration in relationship, for the one who's praying for spiritual power to live for the glory of God, for the one who is praying for the restoration of a broken relationship. Those are things that God cares about. Keep praying. God hears you, and he will answer those prayers. Maybe I could ask it this way. If you aren't seeing answered prayer, are you praying to begin with? Or have you given up? Is your praying shaped by Scripture? Is it shaped by the Word of God? Or those moments that you face in life? Is praying a ritual or the overflow of God's life flowing through you? Has it just become routine? I mean, what, what would we mean by saying it's the overflow of God's life flowing through you? What would that even look like? Well, it would look like breathing. I would imagine since I started, most, most of you have taken at least one breath. Maybe multiple. Let me not assume how many you've taken, but the overflow of God's life flowing in us looks like breathing when it comes to our prayer life. You breathe without thinking because blood is pulsing through your veins. And when the Holy Spirit is pulsing through you, you pray without thinking about it. You just talk to God. It's something plain. The email chimes, and you mention it to God. Someone steps into your office, mention it to God. Can't find your keys, mention it to God. Prayer is as important to the soul as breathing is to the body. It's something that we need to have that life-giving nourishment informed by the Holy Spirit. So one of the parts of a spiritual flooring life is going to be answered prayers from a vibrant prayer life. What else is going to happen as a part of the flourishing Christian life? An abiding life is one of obedient love. Obedience. Everybody's favorite subject. Everybody wants to learn how to obey, right? We see it in our children because they got it from us, that desire to obey. Thank you for laughing. I had it in the sarcasm font in my notes. I was hoping it was a coming across that way this morning. What does verse 10 tell us in John 15? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Oh, what dangerous ground we're on, church. Let's think rightly about this. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. That's verse 10. Verse 17 says this. These things I command you so that you will what? Love one another. You know, this is where so many can imagine obedience to Christ as this burden in the Christian life because it's this self-surrender, it's sacrifice, it's service to others. But see, Jesus is teaching us the opposite. He is teaching us that obedience is associated with joy. This is what it looks like to live differently than the world around us. Obedience that lives, li, uh, leads to joy. 
See, God the Father loves Jesus the Son, and Jesus in turn loves us with the same type of love that empowers us through the Holy Spirit to obey Him. That's union within the Godhead, within the Trinity. And now because of our union with Christ, we get to experience the same thing. Now to be clear, and this is why I said we're on dangerous ground here, to be clear, our actions cannot force God's hand to love us any more than He already does. Our obedience is not the foundation of His love for us. Jesus already loves us. The point here is this. Our obedience allows us to experience the fullness of the love of Jesus Christ already in us. There was a time in life, it feels like lifetimes ago, that I was teaching guitar. Those who are new may not know that I even play guitar, but I do. And at one point, people paid me to teach their children how to play guitar as well. And I remember having conversations with my students. I was not your typical teacher. And I, would, I remember saying this to them. You're only going to get out of this as much as you put into it. You're only going to get out of this instrument as much as you're willing to put into it. In other words, you can learn how to shape your hand for the chords. You can learn how to, with the opposite hand, uh, strum different rhythmic patterns. But in order to bring those two things together, you're only going to get out of that as much as you're willing to put into it. There's a commitment that has to happen there. Perhaps music and instrumentation isn't a helpful subject, so let's think of it this way. How many of you remember being in school and you had to study for an assignment? And the next day when the teacher was asking questions about that, if you had studied, you were, you were willing to be a part of the conversation. And if you hadn't studied, your eyes were down. Don't call on me. Those who are normally bo boisterous on the playground are suddenly quiet in the classroom. Because they haven't given themselves to experience the fullness of the lesson being learned. In the same way, our obedient love happens. We can't maximize the experience of the abiding life when we're not walking in obedience in our everyday life. In other words, there's an hour and a half to two hours that we're gathered here. What are you giving yourself to the other 164 hours of the week? Are you maximizing the call to experience the love of God through obedience to His ways for you. See, sin or disobedience or outright rebellion, they're going to hinder, they're going to block, they're going to sever our experience of the love of God. And a disciple who doesn't obey is not a disciple. That's a fraudulent Christian. There's not two types of Christians. Christians bear fruit, and a part of the way that they bear fruit is obedient love to Jesus Christ. If Jesus lives in you, you can't help but produce the fruit of loving obedience. His life in you will cause you to love what He loves, to, to treasure His words, to obey, not out of duty, but out of joy. And you will delight in doing what Jesus wants you to, because He loves you, and He lives in you, and He shapes your heart to be just like His. See, Jesus is the King 
And he has the authority to simply make a command to us to obey, to demand our obedience. But he doesn't treat us like slaves. Look at verses 14 and 15 together. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This is a part of how Jesus says that we can learn from him. He makes known to us the things from his Father. We're not treated like slaves. Slaves are given commands, not explanations, and Jesus teaches us. Slaves may be around, but they're not in. Jesus invites us into his inner circle as close friends. Slaves don't know what the master wants, but Jesus gives us clear guidance for how to live for his glory. He doesn't just command us. He shares friendship with us. And his friendship makes obedience a delight. We might say it this way, obedience doesn't earn love, but obedience is the evidence of love in our lives. The love of Jesus. I was trying to think this week about ways that we might be practically walking through this as a family right now, and I realized that we've actually been walking through this for a couple of years now. Many of you know that my wife Stephanie is a elementary school music teacher. She teaches one day a week at a local private Christian school. It's been a wonderful experience for her. She enjoys the camaraderie of being a part of a team. She loves teaching children about the language of music. And she loves watching that gift come to life in their little lives. But for the last few years, we've been wrestling back and forth whether or not she should continue working. And in the midst of that, we had to make some other decisions related to our daughter's schooling. And so we we felt like the Lord was leading us to have Ella go to another local school. This was a major change for us as a family. It means now that we have two school calendars to contend with. Thank you, Lord. And I remember that in the midst of these conversations, there's been time and time again that we've had to have conversations about what is the main thing that God is calling us to obey in right now. This year, we made the decision for Stephanie not to return. If you're in the teaching profession, you know about this time of year. It means that you're called upon to turn in what's called a letter of intent for the next year. In other words, we've had to make decisions over the holidays about the school year to come. Well, Ella's still going to be going to this other school, but Stephanie won't be returning to the classroom. And that has implications for our family, not just on the calendar freeing up by dropping one of those school calendars, but it means that we drop that income. It means that we have to pursue other means of provision for that, for that schooling, for those payments. It makes claims on us in terms of finances, and it, it begs the question, well, what will Stephanie give her time to now? And you know, those are very real questions that we have to answer, but we don't wait for the answers to those questions in order to obey. What are you questioning in the call to obedience today that you're waiting for the answers to those things before you obey? That's not the Christian life. The Christian life starts with obedience. We've had multiple conversations where we've had to remind one another the main point is not the finances. The main point is not the calendar. And there are different days that those seem to have different weight in our house. Perhaps your home is the same way. 
The main point is not even Ella and what's right for her education, although that is a primary thing. The main point is, are we doing what we believe that God has called us to do? And then we have to trust Him with the rest. I imagine that you could insert any other form of experience, of decisions in life, things that go on in family. I think we all know exactly what I'm talking about. And this has been playing out for us over the last few years. But we've had to remind one another, our call is to obedience first and trusting the faithful God that we serve with all of the other details. I hope that this is a helpful illustration because the fact that it's been playing over years doesn't mean that we've always walked in it rightly. I said it earlier, there are times when the calendar feels much more convenient for us to make this decision or that. There are times that the finances have felt much more burdensome for us to make this decision or that. There are times that it seems like we made a mistake. And we have to remind ourselves, this is what we believe that God has called us to do. And we want to be faithful in this. Church, that's what the Christian life looks like in our home. My prayer is that's what the Christian life looks like in your home. Why? Because obedience doesn't earn love. Obedience is the evidence of love. We love our daughter fiercely. We love one another fiercely. But we love the God who's leading us through this life more than anything. And we want to follow His leading in those moments and trust Him with the rest. What else is the evidence of a flourishing life? Well, it's inexhaustible joy. Verse 11 says this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This rejoicing, this joy does not mean every day is easy. Every day is filled with laughter. But it does mean this, that your life is marked by a confidence that Jesus is greater and more satisfying than anything that this world has to offer. You know, tonight there's going to be many celebrations for a few hours, and then half of the people that made bets tonight will have much angst about tomorrow. I'm looking forward to funny commercials, hopefully a decent halftime show. We're tracking Taylor Swift's plane to see when she'll make it there. I'm just looking forward to being together. I got no dog in this fight. The bucks were out early. Life is not all about those pinnacle moments, is it? But in the same way that we saw last week, that it is not about the highs and lows of this life, how Jesus feels about us. It is a fixed reality in heaven that our joy being full is a fixed reality no matter our circumstances on this earth. Do you feel you lack joy? Do you feel like your joy became exhausted a few days or weeks or months ago? May I ask a question out of care and out of love? Are you connected and abiding with Jesus in the circumstances you're walking through? Do you find his inexhaustible joy? Look at verse 11. It doesn't just say joy as if it's some kind of vague concept. It says, my joy may be in you. My joy. What was Jesus' joy? Well, Hebrews 12, 2 says this. Looking to Jesus, the 
founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was Jesus' joy? What was my joy? His joy was being the instrument of redemption for the world. His joy was in being used by God to further the eternal purposes of God. And we can have joy in the same, being an instrument in the hand of God and in helping to further His purposes in our lives and in the lives of those around us. See, Jesus promises that, that joy will flow through Him to us like sap to the branches. And His joy will be in us and it will always be full. It will never be wanting. So joy is dependence on God and not in our circumstances. We can have joy when our health is slipping. We can have joy when our business is failing. We can have joy in the midst of opposition. We can have joy in the midst of unemployment. We can have joy when a loved one passes away. We can have joy when a boyfriend or girlfriend says goodbye for good. Because joy is not a transaction. Jesus doesn't send a box of joy to be delivered to your doorstep by FedEx. Joy is not a transaction. Joy is a relationship. And it's a relationship fixed and secured by the blood of Jesus. Jesus invites us into his merriment. He becomes our joy. He brings us into his joy. And as a result, our joy overflows to others through the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we see here? We see answered prayers. We see a type of love that is obedient we see inexhaustible joy, and we also see sacrificial love. So obedient love and sacrificial love. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, let's be honest, church. This is an impossible standard for love. This is an impossible standard. Left to ourselves, this is an impossible standard. But because of our union with Christ, his love is our love. The way he demonstrated love becomes the way that we can demonstrate love. We aren't to love others because of their inherent goodness or external attractiveness, but based on the example that Jesus sets for us. Jesus doesn't say, I command you to generate good feelings about one another. Jesus doesn't say, I command you to generate warm fuzzies. No, he says, love one another. Up to this point throughout Scripture, what we see oftentimes is, that this love is for our neighbors as it would be for ourselves. It's an outward expression of things that we already desire internally. Now, Jesus flips the script a bit and gives the disciples a new commandment based on a different comparison. They are to love one another as Jesus has loved them. This is what we receive externally. We receive the love of Jesus and his unconditional love. Why can I say that it's unconditional love? Well, if you read through the Gospels, you're going to realize that Jesus loved his disciples even in their unbelief. Jesus loved his disciples even when they were being petty with one another, when they deserted one another, in their denial of him, in their laziness, in their betrayal. And how did he love him? Well, he loved him all the way through to the end. And he will love us not only to the end at the cross, he will love us through eternity because he has risen again. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. So not only does that secure the joy that we can receive in Him, it tells us that we can love one another in a sacrificial way. Now here's the danger. 
of these four simple truths we see in John 15, 7 through 17. We can begin to think that, you know what, if I just do these things in my own strength, if I, if I just accomplish these things, well, then I'll be good with God. Maybe you look at a list like this and you just go, that's daunting, that's overwhelming. How can I even begin to do these things? So whether you're tempted to think that you can accomplish this on your own or you're tempted to think that you will never be able to accomplish this, Jesus steps in and says, just as a reminder, this is all of grace. How does he do that? Well, in verse 16, he says this very simply. You did not choose me, I chose you. And appointed this. I made this the purpose of your redemption. I made this the thing that will be the natural overflow of your rescue. I appointed this that you should go and bear fruit. Not only that you should bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Why? Through your good efforts? No. That your fruit should abide because you're so good at it? No. That your fruit should abide because you're so desperate for it? No. Because it is all of grace that any of this happens in our life. It is His favor on our lives, not our ability to accomplish, not our inability, but His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Do you find yourself in one of those places today? Know this, the radical grace of the gospel transforms servanthood into friendship. Only grace can free us to obey. Only grace can free us to love Jesus out of friendship and worship, no longer out of fear or self-interest or self-preservation. If Jesus has taken up residence inside of you, you will be different. You will act differently, love differently, love di live differently. The difference is not due to your own strength. It's not due to your own effort. It's not due to your own zeal or your personality because that's going to lead to spiritual exhaustion and a return to the works of the flesh the difference is due to the persistent work of Jesus inside of you. He appointed it to be so. Jesus is alive. He is powerful. And he is actively at work in his disciple. We might think of it this way. An apple tree bears apples. A peach tree bears peaches. An orange tree bears oranges. And a follower of Jesus loves, prays, and obeys Jesus. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts today, that it would be true. May we not stand in our own efforts. May we not call upon past victories or temporary glories. May we call upon one name alone. No other name by which we can be saved. No other name by which we bow our knee. Let it be Jesus that we call out to. Let it be His glory that we live for. And may we pray, may we love, and may we obey in the goodness of abiding with Him. In Jesus' name. Church, let's stand together and respond to